Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, I'm Naomi Smith, and this is the Bunker Daily. As we record the show a couple of days before you'll be listening, coronavirus cases have started to grow at a worrying rate, deaths have begun to rise again, and getting a test has proven almost impossible across the country due to a lack of lab capacity. The Northeast is the latest region to be placed under stricter measures. We're all being threatened with a nationwide 10pm curfew within weeks if the joy of six doesn't stem the R8. And there are even talks of a second full lockdown. The government has no clear plan to get us to the fabled zero COVID state. Project Moonshot appears to have been thought up by someone drinking moonshine. And they've even had to turn one COVID test centre in Ebbsfleet into a Brexit lorry park. But some parliamentarians are trying to help them out. Whether the government listens or not remains to be seen, but as regular listeners will already know, the all-party parliamentary group on coronavirus is taking evidence and providing regular recommendations to the government in the hope that measures that will actually work can be put into place before things get too grim again. Dan Poulter is the Conservative MP for Central Suffolk and North Ipswich, a former junior health minister. He practices as a psychiatrist still and is vice chair of the no-nonsense action-oriented APPG and is joining me today to bring us up to speed with their work. Dan, welcome to our socially distanced but nonetheless cosy bunker. Uh, Where are you joining us from today? Morning, I'm joining you from uh, my constituency home in Suffolk. So uh, the sun is shining uh, and it's good to be talking to you. So tell me, how on earth do you manage to balance life being both an MP and a practicing clinician? Well, I'm a great believer in uh, people who are uh, in politics, uh, having life, if you like, of the the real world and uh, experience of life outside of politics. There are a lot of people who now go into politics who come uh, straight out of university or political jobs. And it's really important that we've got people with that real world expertise, making sure that there is uh, scrutiny uh, of laws and that brings some genuine expertise. So I have always seen myself as a doctor first and foremost, and uh, an MP is something that I also have the privilege uh, of doing. But um, the my parliamentary work um, and my constituents always come first, but I've always made time to made time to keep my medical registration. And that helps me to bring, uh, hopefully, some uh, expertise to parliamentary debates on health and social care matters. Uh, but also as a doctor, you see a whole host of other things. We, you know, particularly in mental health, look at the impact of violent crime on families, see issues to do with domestic abuse, have a lot of interaction with uh, the welfare system and people who are struggling on benefits. And a particular interest of mine is uh, addictions uh, and drug and alcohol dependency. And that's led me to take a very different view from a lot of MPs in terms of on drug reform policy. So I hope it brings a lot of expertise uh, and uh, that's good and useful in scrutinising government policy. I think particularly at the moment with COVID around, having a medical background is really helpful. 
Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, it sounds incredibly exhausting, I have to say, but I couldn't agree more with you about that need for us to have more parliamentarians with real world experience. I sometimes think that, you know, those that have done the the journey from Eton to Oxbridge to the bar to Parliament, they've never even changed architect, let alone had any, uh, you know, real, real sense of, of the world and how it operates and, and what real, real lives are like. Um, so my, my admiration to you for, for juggling two incredibly stressful but important jobs. So how did you um, come across the APPG and, and why did you want to get involved with it? Well, I've, I've always had a, a very good uh, personal working relationship with uh, Sarah Wilson, who's a, a doctor by background, and uh, was uh, uh, we, we came into Parliament at the same time in 2010, and have always got on very well, and have very similar views on on many issues and topics. And I remember speaking to her actually from the uh, car park of the uh, hospital I was working in during the start of the uh, pandemic. And Sarah was suggesting that it would be good to get an APPG together with MPs and members of the House of Lords who have expertise in health and social care, uh, and also an interest in in, in uh, helping us to prepare for a second wave of COVID. Uh, and it went from there. And then I was contacted by Tom from uh, Movement for Change and uh, have, have been involved and it's been a pleasure working with both uh, Tom and, and, and the group who are supporting us in our work and also MPs from across all political parties uh, and some really good members of the House of Lords who all of us um, have come together with the, the, the focus on scrutinising government policy on COVID but also mm-hmm. giving some recommendations about how we can uh, hopefully uh, get things better for what is likely to be uh, a challenging winter ahead with a wave yeah i mean i think that that's what's been most interesting about the APPG is that it isn't like a committee that's that's just scrutinizing it's actually being activist with its recommendations now you're an expert in mental health and you actually chaired the evidence session to the APPG that heard from the most affected groups in in relation uh, to mental health and you know I'm interested is it is it that it's lonely older people who have been most affected or teenagers whose futures have been snatched uh, from them over the exams debacle and, and things like that you know, which demographics appear to be the most negatively affected on the mental health front from COVID? Well, I think there, there is evidence that says that shows us uh, in particular that some younger people have been uh, very badly uh, affected by the impact of COVID. And uh, uh, it strikes me that uh, lockdown in particular and the impact of lockdown with younger people has been uh, a real challenge, as well as the, the worry about how it may affect their exams. We saw the challenges over the summer with the A-level and GCSE results. Uh, but also, um, you know, we know that people from more vulnerable and marginalised groups in society are often people who can often experience challenges with their mental health. And uh, in my own working experience, um, I've certainly seen uh, an increase in demand on services. And if you think about people who are struggling with debt or struggling um, because of challenging domestic circumstances, those issues have been very much heightened um, during the COVID pandemic and, uh, of course, uh, have a key interrelationship with someone's mental health and well-being. Mm. So it's particularly vulnerable groups, particularly younger people who have been affected. Actually, I would say on the whole, there have, with some exceptions, older people probably have uh, managed a little bit better during these very difficult uh, few months that we've had so far. And what about the impact uh, on the collective mental health of your colleagues in the NHS and, and other medical staff? You know, is there a concern that many of them could 
have been so traumatized by the first wave that you know it's going to be very difficult for them to have to cope with a second wave another deadly second wave again later this year it's been incredibly difficult time i mean i you know i have you know as when i was a more newly qualified doctor you know i i was dealing with patients who who would die um and that's always a difficult experience but you know certainly you know as a mental health doctor yes we we do sometimes have to deal with with death and and um, patients who, who take their own lives, and, and that is a very difficult thing to deal with. But um, I, I wasn't expecting to have to be dealing with uh, patients uh, who died because of physical health causes or becoming seriously physically unwell on the wards where I was working. And you know, some of the patients I was caring for did die, um, and that's a very difficult thing to deal with. The nature of uh, some of the experiences and just the uh, sheer challenge of dealing with um, the, what was a, an overwhelming uh, first wave of COVID in March, April and early May was something that has certainly affected the mental health and well-being of a number of uh, NHS staff. And it's very important as we go forward that we remember that those staff are going to need help and support, not just from their mental health colleagues, but actually there needs to be a system put in place to make sure that that's available for people. And there is some evidence as well that people who have um, survived COVID um, but had but were in uh, ITU may experience symptoms that are consistent with uh, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And we've also got to be mindful of uh, how we care for, for that particular group going forwards because, uh, you know, as we come into a, a second wave, we, we, we need to start to thinking very carefully about the mental health impacts upon those people who have had COVID very severely, but also how we're going to support staff through what's going to be a really difficult winter. Mm. And so so what are the recommendations that, that you think the APPG are, are going to be making to government on handling the mental health impact of COVID? Well, the, the, the first thing I would say as a, as a psychiatrist is, you know, there's been chronic underfunding in mental health services for a, a very long time. And that's something that still needs to fundamentally be addressed and to change and in in particular if we're looking at how we can improve mental health services we know that talking therapies and investment in talking therapies can be very effective the sort of cbt type therapies that are more widely available may not necessarily be the right sort of therapy for helping someone who's got uh, ptsd but um, i think further expansion of talking therapies is undoubtedly going to be a good thing but just in general, just building up community mental health services um, in general um, and uh, investment in community health resources is, is a very important step towards raising uh, and improving care for, for, for patients in general. But it's something that we're really going to need to do um, as we uh, now uh, face what is a, uh, one of my colleagues called a tidal wave of, of uh, increased mental health problems and distress that, that is related to COVID. It's very easy, of course, to talk about government incompetence on COVID, um, but one of their favourite tricks seems to be to present their options as a really binary choice between, well, we can either save the economy or we can save lives. And you were recently quoted in The Guardian saying that that is a totally false dichotomy. Tell us why. Well, the, the evidence appears to be that um, that you know, Britain was uh, one of the worst affected countries by the first wave of COVID. Uh, but at the same time, we were also uh, one of the worst affected countries in terms of a decline in our 
GDP or our gross domestic product. So even though we had there was a lot of criticism about the from some quarters, not 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 I think from sensible um, from people from more sensible informed position, but from some quarters about the uh, damage that lockdown was having um, on the economy. What we see was actually that the two uh, is not necessarily a binary choice, and that actually um, the only way we're going to get ourselves back on our feet economically uh, is to tackle COVID and to drive numbers down and rates of infection down to as close to zero as possible. Because without that, it's not going to be possible to uh, really get our economy uh, back on its feet either. So while we're on the the subject of the economy and and health, it would probably be remiss of me not to mention Brexit and the internal market bill. Um, Are you concerned about the effect that that Brexit might have on our ability to tackle uh, a second wave, you know, particularly with reports of test results being sent to Italy and Germany and access to medicines maybe being at risk? One of the things that that we've always been very proud of in this country, we've always been a great success story, is are the health and uh, academic and, and scientific collaborations that have taken place uh, between British uh, research institutions and, and the British health system and uh, those elsewhere within on the continent within the EU. So it would be uh, undoubtedly um, what we've got to be very careful of. Is that we don't lose the benefit of that of that collaboration going forwards, um, because at the moment, you know, the government has had three months uh, of relatively relative calm over the summer to put in place an effective test track and trace system. I'm not sure that time has been used uh, as well or effectively as it could have been, and we are going to be certainly in the short to medium term very reliant on our European colleagues um, to help uh, potentially with uh, um, ensuring adequate lab capacity um, and adequate testing capacity. Um, so it's really important that, that uh, it, it, that's not lost sight of in the uh, weeks and months ahead as, uh, as as the rhetoric appears to be being ramped up now about the uh, future relationship with the EU. But I mean, I, I, it must put it at risk if, if it's a no-deal situation. And, you know, we, we will now not be participating in schemes like Horizon, uh, which, of course, is the, the pan-European um, research programme that, that has funded so much, you know, great academic research in, in the UK. So, I mean, you know, it is worrying. It's incredibly worrying. We're, we're seeing test centres having to be turned over to be lorry parks. Surely, if we if we don't get a deal, then that ability to send tests to labs across Europe and and work with people to across borders to find a, a, a cure or a treatment is going to be seriously impaired. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a very very reasonable very reasonable point, and and that's something we're going to have to be very cognizant of uh, going forwards because I think one of the dangers at the moment is that. You know, if you like, the government sees Brexit as a, as a discrete, separate issue that doesn't impact upon other areas of policy. But as you rightly point out, it does. And uh, the the biggest challenge we face at the moment, uh, you know, is is uh, is COVID. Um, and uh, it's vitally important that we don't compromise our ability to fight and deal with COVID through uh, making short sighted, short term choices in other areas. Well, Dan, thank you very much for being candid on that. And um, I'm afraid that's probably all we've got time for today. But before you go, uh, having, you know, had, with the benefit of, of having listened to much of the evidence that's come to you through the APPG and, you know, as a clinician yourself, what's the one most important thing that you think the government should do now to help save us from the worst of a second wave? Uh, the, the single most important thing is to sort out the 
test and trace uh, system because at the moment it's not in a, in a place where it's fit for purpose. Yes, we've got more capacity in the system nationally, but the additional capacity is not necessary in the places where it's needed. Um, and we need to improve our uh, lab capacity as well and uh, make sure that we've got a, a fit for purpose tracing system where we can trace uh, very quickly uh, the people who have been in contact with those who test positive. And that is the single most important thing uh, to do um, if we want to be able to uh, manage uh, this uh, virus during what's going to be a very difficult winter period. And do you think that that is as simple as them just basically throwing an awful lot more money at it? Or is there more to it than that? There's more to it than that. I mean, one thing that I, I mean, you know, from my own experience in the past being in, in what was in the coalition government as, as a health minister is there, there's always been an under, there's always been a lack of value placed upon workforce. It's often thought we, the two mistakes that are often made is throw more money at something that equals results. That's not always true. Obviously, money helps, but it's not all about money. Um, and the second thing is that somehow we can build capacity out of nowhere. Well, no, you need the workforce to do that. And uh, there needs to be, uh, you know, training of workforce to the workforce to make sure that you can that they know what they what they they got the right skills to be able to do the job in hand. And this thinking, you know, can't just happen overnight. It needs two or three months of preparation. And, and my slight concern at the moment is was the thinking in place about how we build the lab capacity and the workforce to man and to staff those uh, those labs for testing. Uh, was that thinking in being done two or three months ago because it needed to have been done? and uh, Or is it now only just dawning uh, on, on, on people in power that, that that's an important issue? And, and I hope uh, I'm wrong in, in putting that criticism forward, and I hope there has been more thinking going into this, but, that, but we've got to have a trained uh, workforce in place um, to improve our lab, lab capacity and also to make sure that we've we've got to adequate testing people on the ground to do the testing that's needed. And that, that to me, is probably the biggest part of this. And the idea that can all be coordinated nationally by uh, government is, 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 in my view, the wrong way forward, because what we can see from where COVID um, testing has worked more successfully and else, elsewhere, particularly in, in uh, many Asian countries, is that the effective testing and effective um, lab capacity is built up at a local level and a regional level, uh, and, and it doesn't work when it's done when it's done nationally. And I, I feel that the government's been rather slow to recognise that um, over the past uh, few weeks and months. Dan Poulter, thank you very much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed being on the show. No, I have. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening in today. Don't forget, we've got a live show on Zoom for Patreon backers only on Thursday, the 24th of September at 8pm. If you want to watch the Bunker Maniacs knocking back the beers and putting the world to rights, then make sure to sign up on Patreon to get your tickets. Meanwhile, I hope you all find joy in six and stay well. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Bunker.